Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know, I'm in a really, really good mood. I just got back from a walk through my favorite little bird park, you know, my sanctuary, and I was almost killed by two bloodthirsty dogs, and I'm sure you know I'm I'm terrified of dogs, and horses i'm not real good around <laughs> either one of them i did and, not know that wow fun, yeah, fun golliver fact there yeah well now we've given people lots of ammunition to like torture me if they ever see me in public but you might be asking why am i in such a good mood if two dogs nearly you know ripped off their leashes and came charging after me and decided to chew me up the reason is it kind of jolted me out of my little zen state as i was walking and it made me realize it's not just the dogs that have April angst right now, Andrew. We go from March Madness to April angst, and I'm seeing it everywhere around me. I was at the Golden State Warriors game on Tuesday. Kevin Durant gets one of the most senseless ejections I've ever seen in my entire life. He's playing incredibly uh-huh. well. They're crushing the Nuggets, and then he's just gone from the game, uh, lickety brindle, because he goes after the referees once again. Um, I'm seeing, you know open warfare on the internet right now between Miami Heat fans and Dallas Mavericks fans kind of you know jockeying for who's the bigger legend here Dirk or Dwayne Wade down the stretch uh, <laughs> yeah I'm seeing it's gotten pretty caustic between those two factions <laughs> it really has I've seen Greg Popovich get ejected in like 12 seconds of a game against the De- Denver Nuggets last night but this you're asking why does this put you in a good mood I can tell you why Andrew it's the surest sign that the playoffs are about to be right around the corner. And basically this time next week, aren't we going to be digging into the playoff matchups, discussing who's going to be going against who, and basketball is really going to count. So while we see all these angry people, even the emailers who are just up in arms because we dare to talk about Zion Williamson for 15 minutes, you know, this basketball prodigy who's going to change the league. My God, you know, uh-huh. what are we doing wasting our time talking about him? It's all going to be coming to a head here next week, and I can't wait. I'm so excited. No, it's it's pretty crazy, actually. I, I had that epiphany. We're recording this on a Thursday afternoon, and I had that epiphany this afternoon where it was like, oh, my God, next weekend, the playoffs start, and this all gets very, very real after this month-long malaise. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed we can watching complain about the other night. Yeah, we can complain about the quadruple headers and how our eyes are, you know, glassing over and we can't stay up. I mean, <laughs> you know, we'll have something else yeah. to complain about, but it'll be great. But you were saying about Durant? Well, I was watching Durant, and it's like you forget how good he is, and he gets rolling, and you're just like, oh, my God, maybe you are the best player in the league. And then he Not goes maybe. and gets ejected, and it's a reminder that, okay, he's also going through some weird stuff this year, and this is just KD in a weird place. I don't know. I've never heard the phrase lickety brindle. Is that what you said? That's an old Bill Shonley phrase from the Portland Trailblazers days. He used to say lickety brindle up the middle. You know, that was one of his. He came up with the term Rip City for Portland as well. Uh, okay. He had, you know, bingo, bango, bongo, baby. Look, we could go on and on and on with well, Sha- yes. Shonleyisms. <laughs> Rip I mean, City caught on a little bit more than lickety brindle, but I, you know, learn something new every day. I appreciate it. Um, I'm with you though. I mean, it's been it's been pretty uh, hateful out there on the uh, NBA Twitter streets. I think we're all ready for real drama and real things to argue about because, like, the 
Clippers-Rockets game, one of the Clippers announcers came out and said he doesn't enjoy <laughs> watching James Harden. Great example. Which is like exactly what, reasonable. <laughs> but that's exactly what and, I'm talking about. It only comes out in early April, right? Like people have been fed up with James Harden for four years, but people only lay it on the table when there's a week to go in the yeah, regular season. It's like, oh my God, we need to run this guy out of media. It's like, you know what? It's fine. He's a, he's a Clippers broadcaster. He doesn't have to love James Harden. But anyways, um, yeah, well, I'm I'm with you, and today we're kind of going to bounce all over the place here. Here's what I'm thinking, Andrew, because we're in this mood of April angst, right? So it's not like mm-hmm. we should be piling on, but we did get a really, really funny question from Yago um, about some of the all-time great players and maybe who like drives you nuts watching them play. And I just think in this spirit of April angst, maybe we can riff on that question. What do you say? Absolutely. And I swear to God, I did not intend to have the Clippers fiasco be a perfect segue into this question. But uh, we've had it on the rundown for a couple podcasts now. And Yago says, the talk of a back-to-back MVP for James Harden made me think of an interesting question. Please name your five most dominant players that were the least enjoyable slash exciting to watch in their relative prime. Maybe limited to players that played in your lifetime. That could be more appropriate. Here goes my quick top five. And this is Yago's top five. He's clearly a little bit older than either you or I. He's His fifth choice is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. His fourth choice is Ralph Sampson. His third choice is Moses Malone. His second choice is Carmelo Anthony. And number one, least enjoyable, all-time great for Yago is good old James Harden. Um, so what you're I'm saying curious, is I mean, Yago's doing the games now for Clippers TV? Like he went from open floor <laughs> email god to official Clippers broadcaster? That's what happened? Yeah, he's gunning for that spot, man. I can't blame him. Um, what do you think, though? Do you have any any nominations for your list? Well, for this list, whatever. Yeah, his list was really interesting. I mean, clearly centers are going to take a beating in this category kind of no matter what. Like if you're applauding back to the basket ISO guy, I think that a lot of fans have a hard time relating to those players. And it's funny because, yep. I, you know, like my dad, when he was in high school, he was a center and he would always defend guys like Kareem to the death. And like he would just scream at me, you have to f- feed the big guy. Every time you're in a transition <laughs> opportunity, That's like you take, <laughs> take care of them because those guys have like the worst lives, right? And uh, yeah, this and is, so, that's great, Grandpa Gulliver. You're Grandpa Gulliver. Your dad is great, Grandpa Gulliver. <laughs> I love that he's trying to feed the post, run some mic and drills. Makes perfect sense. Yeah, he's just like, look, if the big guy is getting up and down and exerting the energy uh, on a on a fast break, he's trailing. He you better reward him. <laughs> he better get the ball, right? Um, so. That that stuck out to me from his list, and also the idea of Harden and Carmelo with the isolation uh, tendencies that they've been in. I think some people just react really uh, negatively to that. But if his question uh-huh. is for the primes, as much as I don't like Carmelo, and I've really kind of bashed on him over the years, I'm not sure he deserves to be on this list for his prime uh, because you know the microwave scoring ability, you know, just being able to put up like 20 oh, yeah. in, in a burst. I don't, I don't know if I would say he should be on this category with guys like Moses Malone, who's just kind of catching his own offensive rebounds. And I'm going to get in trouble from the old heads who say he was more than that. But, you know, you know that stereotype of his game where he's just like missing layups and, you know, stacking up 2010s. Um, totally. And with the Moses Malone thing, like I hear his name and I understand that he was great and probably even greater than I realize. 
but I can't help but think of the word lumbering when someone mentions Moses Malone just because of the way he's just kind of always leaning around the basket. And if you're going to get compared to Akeem, like that's just tough. You know, it's like, okay, right. who, who are people going to gravitate to naturally? You know, that's it's just a, a losing battle. Right. So I'm curious. I mean, honestly, we could even continue on by eliminating big men entirely because it's almost unfair no we, they, we, like, we I, better not do that andrew because that's like three quarters of my list <laughs> <laughs> okay well then hit me with your list i'm gonna give you my number one right off the top okay, okay. I, i'm go, i'm going for a guy who's very high on the nba's all-time scoring list uh, i'm going for a guy who is revered in in certain segments of the country i'm going for carl malone Number one overall. Thank you. Wow. All right. We see eye to eye. So I think he qualifies here because of the dominant aspect, right? Like year after year after year, the consistent excellence, putting up all the points, getting the numbers. He definitely qualifies there. But in terms of a guy who I would want to watch, like I felt like even his MVP over Mike is probably what bugs me the most about him because I always felt like Stockton was a better and more important all around player than Malone by a lot. And uh-huh. because Malone's the one who's doing the scoring, he's the one who gets the attention. Um, and any negativity about Malone was always like, you know, about choking in the clutch or like some of the other stuff, not really like dissecting, uh, you know, the finer points of like how interesting his game might be or anything else. To me, I just didn't want to watch, watch him. And I just relished every time Mike punked him, right? Like when Mike comes around the bag swipes the ball from him in the post and goes up and hits the jumper. I mean, that's just beautiful. Like, it's just like philosophically great and also just like basketball great. <laughs> it was and, so and, great. And to me, like, I'm not trying to demonize him. I'm not trying to make him a horrible person or anything else like that. It's just of guys who I did not enjoy watching play basketball. Carl Malone's at the top of the list. And it's weird because I loved Stockton. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, Malone's tough. And and it's it's one of those things where... Carl Malone and thinking back to watching those jazz teams running the pick and roll over and over and over again and just beating teams into the ground with that, it actually makes you appreciate the current jazz team a lot more because at least with the current jazz, you're getting Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell, some Joe Ingles threes sprinkled in. And like I can get behind that. There's at least some variety there. Um, But the jazz, they were so effective and so predictable and... Carl Malone is just the most milquetoast superstar maybe that the NBA has ever seen. So uh, I'm surprised that you nominated him, but he was definitely on my list. <laughs> good. Well, we're in agreement. That's good. One for one. I'm coming with another one who I can guarantee is on your list, okay? Okay. Is it Dwight, Tim Duncan? Dwight Howard. Get out of here, Tim Duncan. We're going to have to stop the podcast. You don't have Tim Duncan on your list, do you? Uh, I do have Tim Duncan on oh. my list. I can't lie, okay? I understand oh, that that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. I did not enjoy Tim Duncan at his peak. Look, Tim Duncan at his peak was legitimately the lowest point for the NBA over the oh, last 25 to 30 years. The entire league suffered because of how boring those Spurs teams were. And I would, the Spurs Andrew, got fun I, I would Tim rather Duncan took a back seat. I would rather get have gotten bit by those dogs with rabies than listen to this. This is oh, despicable. You know Here's the thing. I, can we talk about this? Because I think this speaks to your fear of dogs. Those dogs were probably not rabid or off their leash or anything. They were probably just being regular dogs, and you were walking through the park and perceived them. So on behalf of those dogs, 
I'm going to call you out for overstating <laughs> Look, how the thing, aggressive they may have been. The thing with dogs, Andrew, they can smell fear, and that's why they see me coming from a mile away. Like mm. they know what they're doing. You know, they understand. They size me up. <laughs> I don't blame them for Maybe. it, but I, I'm gonna, you know, keep them at a, a very safe distance. Continue with your okay. Tim Duncan, just ridiculous spiel. This is this is personal. Like, why do you have to do this to me, Andrew? It's it's not personal to you or anyone else who reveres Tim Duncan and holds him dear. To me, he just didn't do it for me. It, it was the mid two thousands. Like I understood he was great, uh, and I, as I've gotten older and learned more about basketball than I knew when I was sixteen or seventeen years old, like. I understand even more how valuable he was, anchoring that defense and giving them such a high baseline year after year after year. I get all that. He wasn't fun to watch. And anyone who says he was fun to watch, I don't totally believe. Like, if you want to tell me the 2012, 2013 Spurs were fun to watch, absolutely. That yeah. was a whole different era, though. You know, well, that, that was that's a where I was going to go. Spurs. That's where I was going to go. So, is it possible that Duncan's prime qualifies in this category, but like his post prime or like his extended prime winds up being yes. almost like the reverse of a Carmelo, where like Carmelo got so unwatchable so quickly after he kind of phased out of his prime, whereas Duncan really did age like a fine wine. I mean, that that 2014 well, team was incredibly fun to watch. The way that they played together was remarkable and Duncan had a huge role on both sides offensively and defensively when when they needed buckets in the playoffs they went to Duncan and he delivered you know Western Conference finals I mean he was right there doing it um so I guess okay yes that's actually that's a good way to delineate because in the same way I, I what I struggled with even in 2014 was that in the same way Moses Malone just kind of personifies the word lumbering to me, I would watch Tim Duncan and I would have PTSD from the 2005, 2006, 2007 Spurs and just be like, this dude is boring. But the truth is that watching him continue to thrive out there was actually pretty cool. And and he had a central role in a completely different era of that Spurs team. And um, and so that I, like I understand anybody who says that was fun. As long as we can agree, it sounds like deep down, you know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about those mid-2000 Spurs teams. No, I do. And I think also similar to the Moses Malone where we compare him to Akeem and it's like, oh man, like, you know, that's not fair for Moses. Like when you're comparing Duncan to Shaq or you're comparing Duncan to the people who he spoiled, whether it's Nash or Kobe or whoever else in those like Western Conference battles. Like, of course, mm-hmm. people are going to look at him and be like, why do we have to watch Tim Duncan play basketball for another round when these other stars <laughs> who are like more exciting and fresher or whatever you want to say uh, are getting sent home? I understand that. Absolutely. But um, to me, I think that I will always remember Tim Duncan as a concept rather than just like the aesthetic player. Right. It's what he stands for, yeah. what he means to the sport, what he meant to the Spurs, what he meant to his teammates, how he improved everybody around him. And how he's got this next generation of guys like Giannis and Jokic, they're both looking at what Duncan was doing and saying, you know what, I kind of want to do it that way too. I don't mind being the face of a franchise. I don't mind being a little bit quieter in the media than some of these other stars. Uh, you know, I mean, Jokic can barely string a sentence together with the media. He wants nothing to do with it. And like, uh, it's very Duncan-esque. And, and same deal with Giannis where, I mean, he could be a lot thirstier than he is. And in some ways, he, he's kind of carrying that... Uh, that lineage on. So I hear what you're saying. I'm not as mad as I was kind of pretending to be, but I do think that if anyone thinks that he wasn't fun to watch, go back and watch tapes from that 2014 playoffs. 
And then when you're seeing how fun the whole team is, remind yourself how important and central Duncan is to everything that they're doing. And can I add one thing as far as Duncan's personality and the persona that Giannis has adopted and Jokic in Denver? The coolest thing about Tim Duncan is that he would like deadpan with the media and give them 20 second answers or 10 second answers and not say a word for basically his entire career. But behind the scenes, everyone around that Spurs team talks about how funny he is and what a great guy he is and how much fun they've had hanging out with him over the years. And I think the same is true with Jokic and the same is true with Giannis. They just elect not to be expansive with the media, but behind the scenes, they're pretty big personalities. Um, I actually don't know that for a fact about Jokic, but I've heard that well, about Giannis. I mean, Andrew, excited. like his nickname is the Joker, right? Like he clearly has that side to him. And <laughs> that, you know what? it so feels like an thing. act, dude. I mean, honestly, it feels like an act when he's in front of the media. It's like after they got killed by Golden State, I mean, I didn't expect him to come out and, and be like forceful, like we've got to bounce back and make a statement or, you know, any of that kind of stuff that sometimes guys will do. But they were like, well, yeah. how's the offense? And he's like, oh, well, and he's like scratching his head. Well, I don't really know. It's not looking he great does, right he now. He does a lot of that. Oh, <laughs> he does a lot of head scratching. I was just being cautious because as I was talking, I was like, wait a second. Is that actually true about Jokic? Or am I just thinking of the Joker nickname, which is definitely some like clumsy American shit that has been applied to Nikola Jokic since he came <laughs> over here. So, no. But I assume well, he's probably fun to be around behind you, closed doors. Tim Duncan yeah. and Giannis certainly were. Deep down in your memory banks, you'll remember Lee Jenkins wrote a great piece about the Joker tendencies of Nikola Jokic. So you, I'm sure you read it. You committed it to memory back there somewhere. Go reread it, and you'll you'll get a nice slice for his personality. Okay. I've got an I've got another guy <laughs> though here, and I think he's much much more deserving. Dwight Howard. I mean, come on, like we can at least agree um, on that one, right? Um, I mean, we can agree. I don't know though. First of all, again, I think it's kind of cheap to put the the big guys on here. I also don't know if he's dominant enough to qualify for for yeah, this I, list. He I had think, a couple I think you're years. forgetting forgetting his peak. I mean, he was really really dominant MVP conversation. No, he was. Easily the best center at that little time. Uh his it didn't last as long as everybody expected, but for me the problem was the personality stuff. There wasn't a separation mm-hmm. between the on-court and the off-court. So like the goofy stuff that drove everybody crazy and wound up alienating him with his teammates and the immaturity and all of that, it just bled over into his game too. And I mean, I give Stan Van Gundy a lot of credit for that. What was it like the 2009 uh, Magic team that was just incredible the way that they were built everything was humming perfectly you thought it could go on forever i mean in some ways it was almost like the predecessor of you know the current bucks where you're just like we don't know how anyone's going to stop these guys consistently for the next five years they've just kind of figured out basketball and yep it blew up so quickly and you know you got to look to the best player and say well you know what happened there and to me that was dwight i mean he should have just been 2010 every year for however many years going forward, he just kind of couldn't stay happy. He couldn't keep it together. He couldn't uh, build a locker room culture. And, you know, he couldn't stay healthy too. And that was a big problem as well. And it was hard to watch him struggle through games when he wasn't healthy. And that's no fault to him. But, um, you know, that was another impact. So when we're looking at guys, I mean, to me, clear-cut future Hall of Famer, multi-time All-Star, multi-time All-NBA, you know, first-team guy, three-defensive player of the year, I mean, if you just wiped his career off the map, I'd be fine. I think the the best moment was the Superman dunk, right? Like that's the one thing that we would cling to. And uh, and otherwise, <laughs> we could just say the basketball gods can just keep the rest of it, right? 
Well, and it's funny because I was thinking about his dunk contest performance and that Superman dunk, and I just thought that was the lamest thing in the world when it happened. And you could go back to his peak. The peak of his career was that finals run, and Dwight was one of the least cool things about that Magic team. I mean, the, the best parts of that run were... Hito catching fire, Richard Lewis <laughs> playing on another level. Oh, wait, 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 Jameer Nelson. Yeah, that's Ray the guy. Ralston. That's the guy who you wanted to go to first was Jameer. I mean, he's right in your wheelhouse of like short, stubby point he guards is. or jack and three pointers. I mean, if you went to UNC, you'd probably have his jersey on right now. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And Dwight, it's not that he wasn't great. That's not what I mean. I just feel like. Dwight has taken so many shots over the years that it almost feels like punching down at this point because his career has obviously been complicated and it just, and like nobody fair, fair enough. Enjoyed point it. taken. Um, point taken, yes. but like we can't have this list without Dwight on it. I mean, it was like it's a very fair, an obvious omission by our buddy Yago. All right. Uh, so another, who else do you have? Another controversial pick here uh, Ray John Rondo. Uh, I've never been able to stand his game. Uh, it drives me crazy. I understand he was really, really good. He had a couple of playoff series that were absolutely spectacular that I covered in person. Uh, mm-hmm. Unique talent, kind of, you know, there's not going to be another Rondo, really. Um, he probably, the game probably passed him by in terms of style of play over these last couple of years. And of course, a big injury kind of changed the trajectory of his career. But the stat hunting, the assist padding, uh, the lack of defense for years and years, despite his reputation as kind of a positive defender, the personality issues, you know, just hearing coaches and assistant coaches that worked with him, just the horror stories, you know, and then this whole myth of like how he's this great mentor for the younger players kind of coming along in the last couple of years. I don't it, think that's a myth, man. But yes, I, I understand you're, I think more people stand with you on Rondo. And and if you pull people behind the scenes around the NBA, there are a lot of people who've actually been there who will roll their eyes at the idea of playoff Rondo or leadership Rondo or whatever. I mean, he's been kind of nasty to people over the years. So I I get where you're coming from. I mean, I'm just saying like the myth version of it, it's not, there's people who question that who were there, right? So that's my only point. And I just never found it that fun. Like uh, I appreciate a true point guard, a pass first point guard, um, but not the way that he did it. And the lack of shooting for years and years there really bugged me too, because again, he's getting all this credit for having these big assist numbers. But when in reality, like he's harming his team's offense because he's just a complete non-shooter. Uh, and you know, yep. the numbers are bearing it out, but people don't want to admit it. So the whole Rondo experience to me, you could wipe that one from the planet. I would have been fine. Oh man. See, I disagree entirely. I respect your take and, uh, I just can't, I, I mean, Rondo was so much fun and so crafty getting his offense around the rim. I mean, like the, the fact that he didn't have a jumper and was still able to be really effective in big moments in the playoffs. And I'm talking about peak Rondo because there have been some really dark Rondo seasons as well. And so I'm really only talking about like 2009 to 2012 or 13 in Boston where he kind of blossomed into arguably the best player on that Celtics team as everybody got older. And, um, it didn't really make sense because you talk about his skill set. Like he was a good passer, but he was never that great a passer. He couldn't shoot. He was long, but he wasn't like a freak athlete necessarily. 
but he would just find ways to be really effective on both ends. He was tough as nails and go he would go toe to toe with guys like LeBron and Dwayne Wade where like he should have been completely outclassed, but he kind of found a way to get it done. And so I loved watching him do that. Um, but I and part of what I loved is how much everybody hated him and and then the behind the scenes stories where you would hear shit like He's throwing stuff into TVs and like flipping out in Celtics yeah. meetings. And, like, and that's the thing. And then you have to listen to all this stuff. Oh, he's this like Connect Four genius. You know what? Just be average at Connect Four and don't quit on the Mavericks in the playoffs and don't punch Chris Paul. How about that? Well, fair enough. I think I'm Team Rondo in the battle between him and Carlisle. Always have been. That's one of my founding principles. Um, all right, let's finish out your list. Who else you got? Darren Williams. How about him? Ooh, pretty good nominee. Totally forgot he existed. Yeah, so for this part of the list, I just went back to like the 2000 through 2000 or 2010 through 2014 All-Star Games and just picked off the guys I didn't really like. A uh, <laughs> <laughs> little bit of a mental shortcut there, but uh, I don't know. I just, you know, the the CP3 versus D-Will debate, like I was always on Team CP3. Uh, he uh-huh. aged whatever the opposite of gracefully is. Um, you know, the injury issues after his big contract, the effort level stuff. Um, I don't the know. The effort just, definitely kind of fell off a cliff there. Right. <laughs> like around 2012, maybe. So he had some exciting moments earlier in his career, but I just think that like the level that he got boosted up in, in terms of where he was going to be historically to sort of how his career panned out was just really dark and depressing. And the lack of playoff success always kind of stuck with me too. So uh, that's why he's on my list. Okay. Um, so is that the end of the the top five for you? No, I got one more top five. And this is another Maybe. one where you might you might disagree. Uh, Andrew Bynum. Now, he was dominant for a very short period of time. Um, but Honestly, I'm, he was dominant for like 18 one year? months tops. Right. Okay. <laughs> it was crazy. But he the, drove- by the way, the Lakers deserve credit for trading him at the peak of his value. No doubt about it. Back when they were still making good moves. Um, so, I mean, how dirty he was during the postseason, just like spearing people out of the air. Um, you know, the flagrant fouls, the the pouting, like, you know, the random randomly taking three-point shots for no reason. Um, just the whole vibe from him. It never seemed like he really cared that much about basketball. Uh, you know, uh-huh. the, again, how we fell apart, like the bowling alley story and all this stuff. It's just like, come on, man. Like you're supposed to be this ambassador for your franchise and this is how it's going to go. Um, and then even when he was like healthy and dominant, again, he's being stuck kind of being like that next shack. Right. So I, I feel bad for him being stuck in that position. He came to the NBA really early. Um, so I, you know, I give him a little sympathy and, and leeway there. Uh, but just the style of play, I didn't love it. And, I just sort of associate players like him with sort of the end of some of the uglier eras of the NBA where we got to a more uh, enlightened and a smarter style of play about three or four years later. And I have never yep. looked back and been like, man, it's such a bummer that we didn't get Andrew Bynum for five more years. <laughs> yeah, it's actually kind of interesting. That whole era, like 2007 to 2011, basically until that Mavs title, there were there was like two or three years of just no man's land where the Lakers won, the Celtics won, but it, it just, it's hard. The Heat won in 2006, I believe. Um, but nobody really romanticizes any of that, you know? It was just kind of a weird transition phase for the entire league, and I think we got to a much better place 
once Dirk won his title and then the LeBron teams came together in Miami and everything kind of got rolling and the whole league took off. Um, but that was not true in the late part of that first decade. Yeah, I caught some heat for saying that those Lakers titles weren't the best, you know, from the last whatever 15, 20 years when we talked about that previously. But I'm with you. Um, there's no question. It was like LeBron was just kind of figuring himself out and everybody was just like on hold until it happened. Uh, and, exactly. and thankfully, thankfully, he came around. Yeah. Um, so all give right. me your well, list. I will run through. I, yeah, uh, I gave you see, my five. Let's hear this. I didn't I didn't prepare for this um, as diligently as you did. Harden is on my list. And oh. I, you know, <laughs> he just is. So sorry. <laughs> He's number five. I'm not going to put him number one and really, like, make this dramatic. But I don't really enjoy watching him play. Um, you know who else is on my list? Russell Westbrook. Wow. I, Are you serious? That's another one. Yeah, I mean, look. Hold on, but you loved his MVP season from like an aesthetic standpoint, though. Um, No, I did not. And we could go back to the podcast during that season where I'd come on and hate on him. But it just, he won MVP because I believe that- He's putting up all these game winners. These these statistical accomplishments are out of this world. I listened to that for months straight, Andrew. Not from me, okay? You listened to that at the very end of the season when I said that the MVP race was basically a tie and the tiebreaker should be narrative and the MVP should reflect who captured the imagination of both players and fans that year. And so I felt pretty good about voting for Westbrook. I don't, I can't say that I loved watching some of those games. And really, like, when I started thinking about it, like, I haven't enjoyed a lot of Westbrook's career. And by the way, what he did this week, the 2020-20 for Nipsey Hussle, was really, really cool. And he has moments like that where you're like, oh, my God, this is one of the most incredible players the league has seen in 20 or 30 years. And that's all very true. I just think his game is best experienced via highlights. Whereas actually watching him run the offense for the Thunder can be pretty brutal sometimes. Um, and yeah. No, I, I hear it, you. I mean, I have the, the utmost respect for his energy level and his dedication and his consistency. I mean, that to me, it's historic how hard he plays night after night after crazy. night after night. But uh, it's hard to get because I put that on such a pedestal. Like I really cher- you know cherish and value that from a basketball player. It's hard to say that, like, I can look beyond that and just all I see is sort of a wasteland of, like, everything else that he's doing, you know, like shot selection, turnovers, um, not finishing around the basket, uh, trusting himself in situations with his shooting that he shouldn't be, um, not running the offense, you know, kind of holding Kevin Durant back for years. And I know Thunder fans want to debate that, but look, it's true. Um, No, so that's, that's exactly what I was thinking about. I was like, you know what, even when the Thunder were elite, I remember watching Thunder games when it was him and KD and just getting so frustrated by some of the shots Westbrook would take. And now, now that it's Russ on his own, I'm still frustrated because he does. He helps them in so many different ways. And he helps, like his energy is something that you can't totally quantify in the numbers. And I I think it does kind of lift OKC and give them a higher baseline than they would have if he were just kind of a regular superstar um, and not just like a freak of nature that we've never seen before. But at the same time, like he'll still pull up for threes in transition where you're just like, dude, you're one of eight from three. And the, the Thunder are so much better when you just kind of get into the lane and pass the people and, and finish at the rim. But he just 
he has his shots that he's going to take whether they're going in or not. Um, so he's on my list. Uh, uh, I'm and- just going to say it right now. You won because like now that you've really laid this out, <laughs> I realize that I, I, I enjoy watching Westbrook less than any of the players that I had on my list. Okay, good. Um, I'm just trying to be honest here. And number three is Tim Duncan. We went over that. Number two is Carl Malone. Glad we agree on that one. Number one may be a little controversial, and he's not number one. I, I don't know. I, I I don't enjoy all these guys equally, okay? But, like, Kobe through his prime Ooh. was a pretty brutal watch. And I he's great. I've enjoyed kind of the grumpy uncle persona that he's adopted over the years kobe in decline when he would just kind of curse through every interview like kobe the character is fine kobe the player was never my favorite let me guess um, you kind of drew the line at the bullying of the teammates like if i'm imagining you really standing up for smush parker and just being like come on man that's not needed (laughs) (laughs) no i actually like all the like kobe mythology behind the scenes like this guy is a psychopath i just like watching that dude pull up from 19 feet for fadeaways 25 times a game got very old midway through the 2000s um and you could even throw in Shaq. i think it's actually a little bit dishonest for me to have kobe on here and not Shaq. like those lakers years were not great for the entire league um but yeah, didn't love Kobe, and um, the other nomination that I had, which is kind of, I couldn't really pick one, but I will say the only Eastern Conference team I enjoyed for the entirety of the 2000s, right up until you got that Celtics dynasty in 2008, um, or it's not not really a dynasty, they only won one title, but like un- until that nucleus... The only Eastern Conference team I, I truly loved was the Milwaukee Bucks with Sam Cassell and Big Dog and um, Ray Allen. They were great, but like every other Eastern Conference contender was pretty brutal to watch through those years. Yeah, I mean, basically from every year since Jordan, I think we can agree on that, right? I mean, it's been pretty rough. <laughs> no, no, I'm just kidding. See, that's <laughs> it's it's very important to appreciate where the East is now because. 10 or 15 years ago, it was so much worse than we even remember. Uh, no doubt about it. Um, you know, without LeBron, it's just it would have been you know a nightmare for 20 years straight. Look, I'm not as down on Kobe as you are, but I see where you're coming from. And I do think you should prepare to get a lot of this April angst that I was talking about earlier. I don't know how well that, <laughs> <laughs> that takes going to go over with the internet. Reddit might be a little yeah. upset with you. I love that we started the pod talking about April angst and then spent 20 minutes talking about our least favorite players ever. <laughs> but yeah, that's fine. If Kobe haters want to flood our inbox, I get it. Um, I'm not saying he's overrated necessarily. Just didn't love watching him play. And with that, Ben, should we move forward? Yeah, well, we just, yeah, we had a haters ball for a half an hour, so we probably should. <laughs> what else we got? <laughs> All right, so Ahima says, This week, Zach Lowe wrote an article about the Clippers bench, and it got me thinking about the 2017 trade of CP3 to the Rockets. With Paul hampered by injuries, declining because of age, and making north of $40 million for the next three years, would the Rockets be in a better situation going forward if they hadn't made that trade? What do you think? 
No. Um, and I think that this framing and Chris Paul is just still wrong, Andrew. I mean, I understand that he's not the guy he was two or three years ago. Chris Paul can still ball. I saw him last night. I mean, he is, you know, shaking people out of their shoes. He's getting not always to the corner like he used to, but he's still, you know, creating very advantageous situations for himself. He's found a very strong secondary role alongside Harden, not getting in Harden's way, helping Harden uh, when he's out there on the court, you know, taking over control of the offense when Harden's off the court. It's smooth. It's seamless. Houston is playing great basketball right now. I mean, when I watched Golden State smack Denver, I was like, man, these guys are on a different level. Then the very next night, I watched uh, Houston smack the Clippers, and the Clippers have been playing very, very well the last you know month or two, and it wasn't even mm-hmm. close. They wiped them off the court, and it's like, okay, well, these are the two teams that are probably going to be facing off in the Western Conference Finals, like one way or another. Those are the two best teams in the conferences, right? That's why you make that trade. Ultimately, yeah. as the front office, you answer to James Harden. You have to put the, the best title-worthy team around James Harden for his prime years. You may not get two more years from Harden that were as good as his last two seasons. And in fact, you probably won't, even though he's, you know, kind of defied all expectations for where he can take his game. These were two incredible years. You owed it to Harden to put the most finals-ready, title-ready team around him. And that means you trade for Chris Paul and you give up the pieces that you gave up to get him. And then you fill out the pieces around him like they have. If they don't trade for Chris Paul, uh, you know, Lou Williams, to me, incredible player this season has been very fun to watch I've come around on him a lot he used to be one guy I just didn't really like to see play but he falls Mm -hmm. apart in the playoffs every single year so that's not going to help James Harden and Montrez Harrell is one of my top five favorite players to watch in the entire league this year given how hard he plays in his style Uh, but again if you're trying to match up with Golden State and you're trying to put the best group out there I'm not sure Montrez Harrell's in your top five, right? I mean, if it's no, also especially not. if you've got to play Clint Capella. So um, I don't think they should have any second guessing about that trade. Of course, there's going to be an extra year or two there on the on the Chris Paul deal that's going to be difficult to swallow, tough to trade, whatever you want to call it. But you do that trade ten times out of ten if you're Houston, and if you're the Clippers, you have to be feeling very thankful that the return package played out as well as it did. Yeah, it's working great for the Clippers, um, but I think. Even if those players were better fits in Houston's scheme, which they're really not, you know, like you don't necessarily need Lou Williams inefficient scoring um, in the playoffs. Like he, he could have helped them, but it's not like he's going to really change the calculus that much. And same with Montrez Harrell. Like, but even if they were better fits, the reason you do the Chris Paul trade is because he raises the ceiling and makes you a real title contender. And really like, Last year's playoffs alone validate the deal because they were, you know, a flip of a coin in game seven or maybe 20 flips of a coin because that's how many threes they missed. But they were close. And had they won that game, they go on to win the title, you know, and that that alone makes it worthwhile. And that's why they did the deal to sort of like give them a give themselves a better shot. And um, and now I don't really I mean, look, if you're asking, would they be in a better situation going forward? I don't think the answer is yes, because Chris Paul still gives them a higher ceiling in the playoffs, but they're not in a great situation going forward, which is like that's a fair point to make because Chris Paul is already not quite the same guy. That's true. And I mean, the Clippers were also able to sign Lou Will and Trez to really team friendly contracts. 
And mm-hmm. because of the roles that they were going to be guaranteeing, right? It's like, look, man, like you're going to be the sixth man of the year. We're going to give you the ball. You're going to get a lot of minutes. Don't worry about it. And with Trez, it was like, we're going to be the first team that pays you because we're the first team that figured out how to use you. If you're Houston and you don't make that trade, are you able to keep those guys on the same contract numbers, given what roles they would have available as sort of just, you know, part of Harden's cast? Probably not. So you may not even have both those guys at this point. Um, they may have moved on somewhere else. So that's another reason why you cash them in when you do. Okay. Um, there we go. Let's keep it moving. We're going to bounce all over the place here. You know, end of the season, no rules. Nobody's probably even listening, you know. Uh, hey, they're listening, moving. Andrew. They're listening. <laughs> they are. We got the evils. We got the evils complaining about our 45 minutes of Zion talk, which is a little fair, but, you know, whatever. Austin says... I hate nothing more than fans and players complaining about the refs. So why not take out human refs entirely and let artificial intelligence blow the whistle? If the tech isn't there yet, it will be very soon. Who would win or lose in this scenario? Well, first of all, I think we could say the human refs would probably take the L in this scenario. <laughs> but who else? What do you Ken think? Ken Mauer. Ben? Fat L for Ken yeah. Mauer. <laughs> um, exactly. Well, I'm... I'm now picturing like Draymond Green like scaling the scorers table to grab a computer and just like throw it onto the ground after uh, an artificial intelligence referee rules against him, or maybe Kevin Durant punch- punching a robot on the court when he gets a so you know <laughs> an excessive uh, celebration technical like. I- don't we need to know where the tech is first? I mean, I understand that they've really used a lot of technology in sports like tennis to eliminate some of the huge uh, human judgment errors, right? But uh-huh. I think refereeing a live motion basketball game is actually too hard for any robots that we've got. I don't know if that's a controversial take, but I don't know about robot technology, <laughs> but I want to see these robots actually able to do it. Prove it to me. Because the ones I see floating around on like Mashable videos, it's like, wow, this robot like figured out how to turn a handle and like open a door. Like, okay, congratulations. Like you're not going to be able to you know, officiate, you know, the, the live action five on five uh, movement of NBA players. Come on. Yeah. Well, first of all, be careful what you say here, because one day the robots are going to be able to go back and listen to every podcast we've ever recorded in the span of about 90 seconds. And they're going to hear that you well, were Andrew, not on their side. I, I've, ar- I've always Zarba's side. I've always been pro technology, Andrew. I love robots, and I, I welcome our new or- overlords. I think ultimately that probably is better for society if if we're all under their care. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's the wrong take. You had it right at the beginning. I, I didn't mean to throw you off. Okay, here's the deal: robots and replay. I'm even going to include replay in this. Like you have this illusion of certainty and heightened accuracy that I don't know, man. If you actually like watch some of these replays. A lot of them are too close to call, and you're always going to have this sort of gray area, and adding robots to the mix isn't going to make anything actually more accurate. And so um, I'm out. The main reason I included this question is because I do, I too thought about the visual of Kevin Durant potentially assaulting some mini robot on the court at Oracle. And that would be fantastic. Did you ever see video of um, the people in Philadelphia beating the crap out of that Canadian robot who was traveling around America, visiting all these cities? Must've missed that one, Andrew. (laughs) Okay. I forget. I forget the name of the robot, but look, I would be into it if it's like Chris Paul 
kicking some robot official in his robot balls like that'd be fine um but as far as like actually doing this i think the human refs are kind of nice and i think if anything else we need less replay because some of this stuff is always going to be a judgment call it's a judgment call on replay as well and you're slowing down the game to and the costs outweigh the benefits in a lot of cases um and you're not necessarily making anything more fair or accurate yeah, I'm not sure I'd go that far, but I hear your point for sure. I think we're at a pretty good place. I think that we're at like a peak or a zenith of nitpicking about this stuff, and we spend too much time in general talking about it. I think That's Austin's, I mean. yeah. yeah, his first point of I hate nothing more than fans and players complaining about the refs. I could not agree with that more. Um, and just like from the human side of the referees, like you know, I stay at that really crummy hotel in Oakland. You know, I think I've like uh-huh. bragged to you about how bad it is, right? Um, and it's like kind of a, a badge of honor. It's like, okay, this is like the shadiest hotel that I can get. Cause I'm saving my company money by doing it. Well, I was yep. there about three or four weeks ago and you know who else was at that hotel? <laughs> the three NBA refs who worked the Warriors game that night and they were pouring over <laughs> video in the little lobby of the hotel. They were pouring over video from that night's calls to do their little post game reports. And, you know, I came back at like 12, 1145 at night. Cause I had had to write on deadline and all that. And these yep. guys are still grinding through the tape, and I guarantee you they probably had like a 9 a.m. flight out the next morning to go to their next game. These guys are human. They deserve a little leeway. They definitely miss calls. The players should be treating them much better than they do. Um, they, a lot of times, display a level of patience and poise that I would never be able to display in a million years if I was being verbally assaulted. And, uh, you know, they're going to blow some calls. We're going to make fun of them over the next couple of months. It will get heated. There's no question about it. But they are humans. And, uh, you know, I, I think that we we owe them a little bit more respect as a society uh, than we've shown well, them. Well, yeah. And I think a lot of people do respect them. It's the players who respect them least of anyone you're talking about around the NBA, whether it's coaches, fans, media, whatever. I think the players hate the refs more than anyone. And if we move away from the robot conversation, there is a separate conversation to have about when this all hits a tipping point, what Adam Silver can do, what he should do, because I swear to God, and you talked about the April angst, like every night these these days, there's a new ref getting attacked by another superstar and verbally attacked. But like I saw, um, I think it was Chris Paul and Ken Maurer. Chris Paul was like mocking Ken Maurer to his face while James Harden argued a call the other night. And there's yeah, that the should have been stuff. another... That should have been another ejection right there, too, by the it's, way. Yeah, I don't blame the refs for for feeling like they're kind of under attack, and they should be allowed to, to sort of strike back and be like, all right, if you're going to pull that, you're gone. I like, And so I don't know. I, I think we need to get to – we need to get closer to an uh, equilibrium between refs and players. Um, right now, great point. players right now, are crossing it, the line. Great point. Thank you for saying that. Can you imagine if one of the top 10 most famous players in the league during David Stern's era had tweeted out TD for Tim Donaghy after um, a you know disputed call where you know his teammates wound up getting fined and he only got fined $35,000. And that's Draymond Green who did that. Um, you know, yeah. after his teammates had had this whole social media campaign making fun of uh, Marat Coogan or however you pronounce his name, the, the referee. Um, what do you think Stern would have fined Draymond for that? Two million? <laughs> I mean, how long I would know. that have? 
How long would that have been in arbitration? Three years? Four well, years? I mean, I, there's I no also, way he's giving him a $35,000 fine. I can promise you that. I thought all the fines, and look, I'm not trying to go in anyone else's pockets, but I did think that the fines were a little bit tame, given how crazy the Warriors were after that game. It's one thing if it's heat of the moment, but... That was like premeditated. We're gonna go after this guy, and I think Steph got like fifteen grand. K or no, KD got fifteen grand. Steph got twenty five grand. I don't know. I thought you could have gone a little bit harder to send a message that you stand with the refs. Um, but yes, David Stern would be. You'd be definitely talking six figures with some of this stuff. Um, and uh, it honestly, would have been suspension. Better way maybe. to play it. Yeah, and I'm not saying there could have been suspensions, don't you think? I mean, like when you're calling into question the integrity of the sport, which is what they said in their email, that's serious business. And like, I, again, I'm with you. I don't want to be saying, oh, we need to be finding this player this many dollars. I mean, it's not my decision, but I do think it's yeah. something that Adam Silver should be taking really seriously, especially because he's out here at symposiums talking about gambling and all of this stuff constantly. It's a clear priority for him. Um I would like to see him defend the league and especially defend the refs a little bit more aggressively than he has so far. Yeah, and that's that's the main point. It's like we're not super pro ref either, but like there should just be more mutual respect than there has been for most of the season and particularly for the oh, past I, month. So I, I don't know. I mean, you look at a guy like Ed Malloy. He's an example for children, Andrew. I think we're pretty pro ref. Like we can go around the league <laughs> and we can single out some I'm of these guys who who are great role models. <laughs> <laughs> we sound like two <laughs> we sound like two cops on this podcast, um, but. Kevin says, your conversation a few weeks ago about Giannis and Embiid got me thinking. How likely is it that in 2025, four of the top five NBA players will be non-American? I'm thinking, of course, of Giannis, Embiid, Jokic, and Luka. What do you think? Where where are we going to be in five years? Um, Well, I think that these guys all have chances to be top five players, first of all, but let's not sleep on some of the American prospects too. You know what I mean? Like we had that conversation about Zion ceiling, but if you're trying to tell me who is more likely to be like a top five player in the league six, seven years from now. Uh, Devin Booker, obviously. Gotta oh, throw him in on. the mix. Don't be, don't be silly. <laughs> but uh, I'm just saying of the names that he listed, how many are you feeling very strongly they could? Like Giannis, I feel very strongly about and B, the injury questions that far in the future would make me nervous. Jokic, um, he's still got to win a playoff series. I'm not sure it's going to happen this year. And he's got to prove he yeah. can stay on the court in this style of play. So I think that's an open question. And then Luca, you've raised lots of doubts on that front. I'm a little bit higher than you. Uh, I think there's a good chance because he'd be right in his prime at that point because I think he'd be like 25 or 26 that he would be in that conversation. Um, but yep. I'm not ready to say that the international takeover is going to sweep the future top five of the top 100 of uh, you know 2026. I think he's a little aggressive there. It would be very cool if it happened. And you talk about Luca. Luca, his best case scenario absolutely ends with him in that mix. I personally am out, and we had that convoluted back and forth a couple weeks ago. Here's the deal. I think Luca's overrated, and that's just the way it is. I'm not. I'm not going to kind of like hedge back and forth here. But Luca's best case scenario is undeniably in that category. Jokic, I can't quite get there because of the defense. Um, I think his best case scenario is top ten, not necessarily top five. 
Embiid could absolutely be top five um, if he stays healthy by the time we get to 2025. He's, he's top five right now, if you ask me. Giannis is the one that I find really interesting because we've talked about it for two or three years now. He is going to be the face of the league, and it is going to matter that he is as international as you come. He's got African roots. He's got Greek roots. And that's going to be a real factor and story as we talk about what the NBA is, what the NBA represents. Um, and so it's that's really cool, regardless of how many other international guys are in the top five. Um, you know what I Giannis can't wait the for? Giannis face of the league. It's going to be crazy. You know what I can't wait for is the Giannis generation. You know, all the kids that are out there right now who are saying, I want to be an NBA player because Giannis did it. I mean, that's going to be... I mean, like you're saying, how many hundreds of millions of people is he touching in a way that other NBA players haven't previously because of yep. his story? I can't wait to see that. Another international guy we should throw in here, though, is Ben Simmons, you know, and I know you're a little bit lower on him, too. But you know, we're talking about number one overall pick, almost averaging triple doubles, uh, you know, all NBA candidate, all star already in his second season. He's going to be right in the middle of his prime. You know, he's another guy Absolutely. who could could be crashing that party. Um, but you know, we've we've got some other American candidates too. But the the depth of young players coming from outside the country is is pretty uh, remarkable. I mean, Jamal Murray from Canada. You know, we can keep mm -hmm. going down the list here. There's a lot of guys. Yeah, and I, this was in the ten thousand word story I did on international people over the last. Um, I I think that came out last winter, but. It is pretty interesting to think about where the NBA was in the middle of the last decade when it was Spurs and Pistons and every game was played in the 80s. And the two things that have changed since then, the two biggest things, actually there are three things. Number one, LeBron set a different standard for superstars than had been set in the decade before he came to the NBA. And, and everything professionalized among superstars who wanted to take ownership of their own careers take care of their bodies 365 days a year. And that made a big difference. But the other two things are pretty much directly correlated to the international influence because the game was opened up and started to look a lot more like the European game. And everybody started to flourish as a result. And so the offense got better and it just, it's, it's 10 times more entertaining than it was 10 years ago. And then also, like you said, like the depth of talent you add 10 or 15 guys from around the world who are also at an elite level, and suddenly we've got like 30 or 40 great players in the NBA, um, or at least 30. Like we could fill out a couple more all NBA teams without putting any like embarrassments on there, which is kind of crazy to think about. Yeah, and I actually think the under 25 international talent is even like more sizable than if you're just saying like the 30 best guys, right? Like if you're saying, okay, let's just pick like a team of the best players who are under 25 right now, there would be an outsized portion of international players than at any other time, which is cool. Um, and I think it's only going to continue. Like I think, uh, you know, USA, we have to step our game up a little bit. <laughs> well, speaking of needing to step our game up, Michael says... At what point did everyone that's involved with the NBA decide that Jason Tatum is a mega celebrity? He's been in so many commercials, and he's currently sponsored by Gatorade, taco shops, pizzerias, Nike. Does he really deserve to already be a marquee player in the NBA? So, Ben, what do you think of the state of 12-time Tatum at this point in the season? 
Yeah, Michael, I mean, pay attention. Smarten up, Nas. We told you the moment that he became a certified superstar was Las Vegas Summer League when he started getting crowned (laughs) (laughs) as a 12-time All-Star, 12-time Tatum, right then, right there. I mean, look, it's the Celtics hype machine. You know, he deserves a chunk of it. You know, he's a very interesting player. I think the backlash might be a little bit too strong here. Um, Yep. But... If he's playing on a random team, the, the the level he's talked about, the endorsement opportunities is significantly smaller. I mean, the Eastern Conference is just so thirsty for anything they can call a star that they'll elevate almost anybody. Well, here's the thing. His, his shooting has really fallen off this year. But as much as I would love to pile on with the rest of Celtics haters who are now hating on Tatum and delighting in his kind of regression this season and the reality check that Celtics fans are enduring. I do think that he is still pretty special and he'll have moments in the half court as I'm watching these Celtics games where I'm like, I understand you haven't hit a three for six weeks and everyone in Boston is freaked out by the state of your offense, but he is still going to be able to create offense in the half court for that Celtics team. um, Once you get to the playoffs and, or at least he still has the potential to do that, which makes him really valuable. And I think he's probably the biggest X factor for Boston this spring. If they can get something out of him, they can really do some damage and get scary as they get closer to May and June. Um, so I'm not giving up on him yet, even though if you look at the last two months, three months, like Jalen Brown has unquestionably been the better player. There's talk about potentially benching Jason Tatum. Like It's been a weird year for him. Um, and he was overhyped, but I think now he might be a little bit underrated because so many people are kind of like piling on. Like he's still special in some ways that other guys aren't. He's got things that Jalen Brown is never going to be able to do. Yeah, I, I'm still in on him. You know, I, I wouldn't be selling the stock. I mean, it's been kind of funny to watch as someone who doesn't like the Celtics high machine. It's been very enjoyable to have all this play out. But <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's he's gonna be great. He's gonna be an all star. Maybe not. Maybe not twelve. You know, it could be a while until he gets one. But yeah, uh, yeah. We'll he needs see. a better we'll situation. His longevity. He no. He is. He needs a. I think he needs a better point guard. If he can just get a better point guard, he'll be fine. <laughs> he. The deal with Tatum is think of him as a future all star. Don't think of him as a future MVP who's untouchable in Anthony Davis trade discussions. And that's actually another factor to. As we as we forecast his future, I don't know. I hope for his sake he doesn't end up in New Orleans, um, but maybe that's where this is all headed. Uh, either way, though, this spring yeah, for him well, should be look, really, if, really interesting. If he gets traded to New Orleans, we're revising 12-time down to two-time. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It might be two or three-time. The West is tougher on its own. A um, couple more questions here. Tom says, Regarding last week's discussion on the lottery and lottery reform, I feel like the new rules have made the tanking even worse. Instead of the usual two to three teams vying for the worst record, you now have 10 to 12 teams tanking because a couple more losses can double the chances of a top four pick. I think he's overstating it there to some degree. I I wouldn't put the number at 10 to 12. It does kind of seem like the entire bottom tier of the league has been losing over the last couple weeks, maybe month or so. Like everybody recognizes that if you can get into that bottom seven, you actually have a pretty decent shot at landing in the top three or four, and that's worth tanking for. 
Yeah, I I haven't studied this issue carefully, so this is more of just a gut feeling, but I do feel like the egregious tanking is not as bad this year as it was in past years. So it may have been yeah. just de- delayed a little bit. It may have been softened just a touch. It may be that we're not seeing like as many truly awful like Suns level teams, you know, at the very bottom. Um, but you know, to me, the the respectability factor in the average game this year has been up. And I do think it was a real problem the last couple of years. So I don't know if it's going to say it's like a sweeping change. Maybe it's just a marginal change. But uh, I think that maybe the emailer is suffering from some April angst too. Look, there's been some ugly and (laughs) and unwatchable basketball games here lately. But I think on balance or in the aggregate, the NBA is in a healthier spot than it was uh, the previous year. That's probably true. They they have moved the inflection point down the board a little bit to where you have these half-decent teams who are incentivized to go and lose where they can. Um, but you're right that the entire season, if you're looking at the last six or seven months, has felt less tanky than it did over a couple over, – like – over the last five or six years. Um, so that's a that's a win for the league and probably exactly what they were trying to achieve. I do yeah. really hope that Atlanta can luck into Zion somehow because, man, the Hawks for the last couple of weeks have been so much fun. Did you see the, the win over the Sixers the other night? Like, they're actually beating decent teams. They were hanging with the Spurs for a little while. Like, something is happening in, in Atlanta. Yeah, they're almost about to get 30 wins. Really incredible. <laughs> and, <laughs> no, and the I don't know. You're, get, you're, getting, <laughs> you're getting swept up a little bit in the Hawks stuff. I mean, they've been fine. But I also think that we should point out there are some pretty clear extenuating circumstances in some of these situations that are influencing teams that are losing regularly, right? Like the Lakers, half their team got injured, right? That's a real factor. The Grizzlies would be a lot more watchable if Jaron Jackson Jr. was healthy. Uh, well, and they're yeah. actually trying to win so that they can get rid of their pick this year. So they're kind of an outlier as well, right there with Atlanta. Um, right. You're you right, by Min- the way. But like Minnesota, though, they're having a coaching change. Uh, you know, Dallas has this big trade for the future with Porzingis. So like some of these teams that have been losing more consistently lately, um, I think there's circumstances at play where like they're not necessarily going to be like repeat tankers next season, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Um, And you're right that I am getting swept up in the Hawks. And, you know, when my Hawks thing went too far, I I heard myself literally 90 seconds ago saying, there's something special happening in Atlanta. And then heard you talking, and I was like, why did I say that? It's not that big of a deal. None of these games matter. The Hawks are trying, but, like, they're probably still going to be pretty much outside the playoff picture next year uh look andrew that's why i'm here for real that's why (laughs) i'm here okay look they'd be 14th in the western conference it's not that special quite yet but trey young's had a couple good months and he's got a cool nickname that i know you pointed out on twitter i actually think i think ice trey is better than you're giving it uh credit as a nickname i don't know why you're hedging on that one it was really, when I first heard it in November, it was pretty brutal. Um, but now that he's well, look, good. Yeah. It doesn't sound good when he's shooting 24% on threes, but when he's <laughs> exactly. shooting 36% on threes, it's like, all right, let's do it. Yeah. You know, it's got a little legs now. I still would say it's pretty corny um, and a little bit groan inducing, but if he continues to play the way he's playing, he had 37 and 12 against the Sixers after Ben Simmons last week came out and said that Luka Doncic is the rookie of the year. So nice little response from Trey Young uh, against Philly. And if he continues to 
put up numbers like that, whatever he decides to call himself will be cool over the next couple of years. Um, well, here, so here's I, the amazing thing. He's like 14 years old and they're only three games back of your Washington Wizards. So get, you better hop on that bandwagon <laughs> immediately because it's only getting darker. But Andrew, uh, that actually brings me to your favorite segment, my favorite segment. It. That's right. It's the Lantern brought to you by LinkedIn, sort of. Um, we've got this week's prompt was in response to your amazing live reaction to the Ernie Grunfeld news. And just for people who didn't hear it on the last episode or people who want to relive the magic, Andrew, you were afraid to be happy right off the bat. I think you were so discombobulated. You were trying to take the high road, but like after about 45 seconds of, uh, centering yourself of kind of processing what this really meant after 16 years of, of Grunfeld's tenure, you were finally free. You really let loose uh, some real joyful moments. I think you compared him to a, a doctor who would, you know, fail the surgery, but somehow managed to save the patient's life. I mean, there was some real gems in there. It was great to yep. walk that emotional journey with you. So I asked the audience on Instagram at Ben.Golliver, I asked them, I need to know some moments where you were waiting for years and years for something uh, to happen. And then once it finally happened, uh, it was worth it. Okay. And I, you know, our listeners, they love love and basketball, Andrew. You know, that's the main topics that they come through. I mean, it's sports, it's relationships. That's what people like to, to, to feed also us a, with. A fantastic movie. A hundred percent. And I'm trying to copy that formula with the, <laughs> the answers that I've chosen here. The first one though, is actually from a guy named Hibachi 8. Okay. And he writes just a wild story. Here it comes. My picturesque hometown of something I can't pronounce, Switzerland, has a nationally respected soccer team. It was in the first division for a very long time uh, in the 70s and 80s, and it actually beat the likes of Real Madrid or Rome in various competitions. In 2011, though, the club was bought up by a Chechen businessman for one symbolic Swiss franc. So clearly it was in some financial distress. During the first summer of the new ownership, the Chechen magnate purchased some players that were way out of the league of my local club. Um, as a kid, I was quite excited for things to come. Maybe I could finally see my team win a championship for the first time in my life. But things started getting fishy when the guy changed the logo of the historic club uh, to make it just whatever he wanted. It got even worse from there. Sponsors left. Chechen traditional dance videos were being played on the stadium screen <laughs> <laughs> at the end of games with creepy music playing. Remember, the sponsors had left, so there wasn't much to advertise anymore. Three uh -huh. months in, it turns out that Mr. Bulat Chagagev had no clean money at all, and the players hadn't been getting paid the entire time. The club went bankrupt, and Bulat fled. So then that left the team relegated to the fifth Swiss division. I was heartbroken. Oh My entire childhood gone. But with the help of local business people and volunteers, the club worked its way up the divisions. This year, seven years after bankruptcy, it is finally back in the first division, fighting against relegation and doing decently well with a relatively tiny budget. I am absolutely thrilled and even watch the games from Toronto where I study. Eventually, I hope the team will reclaim its title as a household name and the Chechen mistake will be forgotten. The moral here is don't sell your football team to someone uh, who's doing business with Kadarov, the Chechen dictator. The Nets got lucky. 
So, I mean, there's so much to take in there. Uh, I'm just wondering, <laughs> like when you hear this story though, and I'm trying to apply it to the Wizards example for you, uh-huh. is is Ted the guy? Like was Ernie the problem or is it a Ted problem? Well, that's a different conversation. It's a little bit of both, I would say. The This does make me appreciate my life as a Wizards fan, though, because I like the way he wrote his email, um, or I guess that's an Instagram direct message, but when he says, things began to get sketchy when, and it's like, no, man, things got sketchy when a Chechen bought your favorite team for one <laughs> Swiss franc. <laughs> like, that should have been the red flag right there. And then also, like, I kind of wonder what the fifth division of Swiss soccer is like. I mean, is that basically like an intramural league or something? But yeah, um, uh, that, that's actually hilarious. We need to get some footage from those years. You know, I could just picture these guys like eating cheese as they're going out there on the right. field, like, like negotiating could you and I peace treaties. Fifth division Swiss soccer for a Chechen <laughs> soccer team. Um, well, I've, got, I've got a bad knee now, so probably not. But you might be able to. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, either way, I'm very, very happy for him, and I do kind of relate, except that the Wizards have been more relevant through some of these painful years, and that's one of the things that was hard about it. It was it was like they were actually close to mattering um, and could have made a few different moves that were just not really explored over the last 10 years or so as they built around Wall and Beal. Um, but uh, so... In one sense, it was more frustrating because we were closer. But in another sense, you know, at least we didn't drop down to like D1 AA basketball. So that's a victory. Yeah, for sure. And I brought that up actually because kind of talking to people about this Wizards opening, I was surprised how much respect there is out there for Ted Leonsis uh, among mm-hmm. other league executives. I think part of it is because he has stepped up and paid his guys. And, and you've brought the point like, they didn't handle it always the best. Like some of these restricted free agencies got a little bit weird. They just, you know, backed up the Brinks truck for John Wall. But like, if you're an executive, you care most about your ownership cutting the checks, right? Like keeping the yep. players you want to keep. And I think other executives really appreciated that about Ted Leonsis. And he paid Wall, he paid Beal, he paid Porter. I mean, he even paid uh, Andre Blatch, you know, and even and amnesty them, right? So. I think um, yeah. that that bodes well for you. If he can just pick the right president, a guy who knows kind of how to maneuver and to operate things, and he can put his financial backing behind this team and kind of come to a an understanding, like maybe the, the future will be a little brighter for you there in D.C., Andrew. Yeah, I mean, over the years, there have also been some decisions that have led to some grumbling from me on this side of the phone call uh, where it's just like, really why are we just gonna sell every single second round pick (laughs) like is that (laughs) i don't know if that's the smartest strategy i think sometimes teams use those and find some value there but you know they do you know they've traded their next five second round picks that's a true fact did you know that 2019 20 21 22 23 you got a couple coming back but Whoever is stepping in for Ernie is going to need to generate some second round pick Sam Hinkie style. I can promise you that. It, it was actually pretty funny. Like I, I wrote about the Wizards this week uh, for Thursday and I had to kind of make a call. It was like, you know, I could go through every move that pissed me off or just 
link to some chart of stuff that they've done <laughs> and just kind of allude to it. I don't want to get into it. It's going to derail the whole conversation. So I, I elected for option B. But yeah, the the five second round picks thing, there, there are all kinds of moves along the way. And it is, that's one where like the main issue I would have with Ted, and again, he's worlds better than the, the Chechen owner in Swiss soccer, but I do wish that he would be a little bit more ambitious in terms of where he expects the Wizards to be in the league because a lot of years it was like we're just trying to get to the playoffs so that the goal is the playoffs and like sometimes you have to take a step back to take two steps forward and the Wizards never really recognize that as an organization which could just as easily be on Grunfeld as it is on yeah but I was gonna say so I mean if I was a candidate for this job I would be preaching that message hard because I think Ted wants to be viewed like even in his the statements he's making like let's turn this into this world-class team this is the best job on the market like he's laying it on pretty thick there but like if you're the new young young candidate coming in sell that vision you know no more mediocrity we're gonna break out of this this is a, a sleeping giant organization I mean you know something like that uh, I think could help get you the job because I don't think that Ted wants to be viewed as this, you know, 35 win team that's about to get lapped by, you know, 16 year old Trey Young. Like, I think he wants to be a, a mover and shaker, sort of like he is in hockey. Absolutely. He's a forward thinking businessman. And I hope that he becomes a forward thinking basketball owner because that hasn't always been his role over the last 10 years. Uh, but we'll see where it leads. Hit me okay. with the second lantern submission. This one's great, Andrew. It's from Man of the Peace 1204, and this is basketball related. And uh, I believe uh, our friend uh, Man of the Peace is actually, if I'm doing the math right, he's 14 years old. And look, we got a lot of basketball related answers to this. People were saying, I waited so long for you to talk about the Pacers, and you finally did it. Other people said, I waited for Joel Embiid for three years. He finally showed up and played, and it was awesome. A couple people said, waited my whole life for a Cavaliers title, and I finally got it. But I picked Man yep. of the Pieces because it's just kind of heartwarming story here for you uh, heading into the weekend. He writes, My mom, my brother, and I moved to the United States from Mexico in 2010 when I was five years old. The NBA-Mexico Games partnership had not yet happened when I lived there, so I had never witnessed an NBA experience in person. My love for basketball grew over the next uh, eight years, but I had still never seen a game. With a single mom and education as the sole focus of my life as an immigrant, the conversation to go to an NBA game was never brought up by my mom. Then spring break 2018 happened. I asked my mom if we could go anywhere, not expecting anything. She gave me two options, Cleveland or North Carolina, because those two places we had family. I okay. chose Cleveland over North Carolina because Cleveland has an NBA team. I think that's a dig at the Hornets, but we're going to let it slide. Uh, not knowing my own luck, the Cavaliers were set to play the Bucks during my spring break week. My first NBA game was LeBron versus Giannis. We got to the arena without tickets, bought the cheapest ones possible, and watched LeBron drop a 40-point triple-double with Giannis countering with 37 points, 11 rebounds, 5 assists. An absolute masterpiece. I even got on the big screen with a poster that read, I love Jose Calderon, but I didn't take a picture of it because I was trying to live in the moment. Overall, it was worth waiting eight years to see a dream play out in real life, and he included a picture of himself standing next to cardboard cutouts of LeBron, 
Kevin Love, and George Hill. Isn't that the greatest story you've ever heard, Andrew? That is unbelievable. I remember that game, too, because it was that was kind of a preview of a torch passing that will probably happen over the next year or two. But that game where it was Giannis and LeBron, I remember just being like, whoa, okay, so this is the level Giannis is going to be on. That is, and even LeBron, you could tell at points in that game was like, okay, so this is this is Giannis. Here we go. Uh, that was pretty awesome. I, it would have been really cool to be at that game. Can you imagine that being your first game? Like, I'm picturing your first game. Do you remember your first Wizards game? Um, no, I remember the first game I saw in the Verizon Center was Vin Baker's Seattle Supersonics. It was a bit of a letdown. Uh, I forget who was on that Wizards team. But yeah, it was. And really, if you think about it, the odds of getting to a game that's actually good if your first game is a regular season NBA game are pretty slim. You know, a lot of these games, you got to have to like, tune out to really enjoy but to be locked into a real battle uh is awesome like good for that guy no it's incredible and like i think my first game my dad tells a story that uh clyde drexler got ejected and and i just went to the concourse and started crying i don't know how young i was but uh so (laughs) i did not get the classic that our our little homie got and i'm very excited for him all right the third lantern uh, story. It's a little bit different, a little change of pace. This is more the love category rather than the basketball category, Andrew. It comes from a guy named Ahmad, and he writes, "My me and my girlfriend have been dating for six years now, unbeknownst to my parents. My parents were born and bred in Pakistan, and they got married and had already had kids by the time they were my age, 23. They don't seem to understand the idea of not wanting to get married until later on in life after being established. It's also a heavily uh, faith-based upbringing because my parents are staunch Muslims and marrying someone uh, away from your religion in Islam is generally frowned upon, unfortunately. My girlfriend grew up Baptist, then learned about Catholicism when her parents split up and her dad remarried. So she's still figuring things out uh, from a religious standpoint. Then he Mm -hmm. writes, For all this time, I was dreading the day that I would summon the courage to speak to my parents, fearing severe backlash and a level of disappointment I didn't think I would be able to bear. What if they didn't accept my girlfriend? My parents and I have had very different uh, cultural upbringings, and it's created a divide between our mentalities. Although the conversation was incredibly difficult and we're still working through things, my trepidation was met with mostly positivity. They knew how much strife I'd felt, and although they haven't fully embraced our relationship, they made sure to let me know that they will always be there for me. I'd say that conversation was both necessary and worth it in the long run. I'm sorry to turn your podcast into a therapy hour, although hopefully this could inspire someone who's in a similar situation to let down their inhibitions and go for it. What do you think, Andrew? Has Ahmed provided necessary love advice to the entire open floor globe? That is phenomenal. That literally brightened my day. A little life-affirming anecdote there. Um, yeah, absolutely. That's this, this is Thursday's version of Ernie Grunfeld being fired by the Wizards. It's like, <laughs> there is hope in the world. Things can, it's a, things can get better. Um, no, that's, it's that's a, actually a very cool story. I'm happy for them. 
it's a beautiful story, Andrew, and you can see what I did here, okay? It's a narrative arc. I started with me being chased by dogs and April angst, and we ended with two of the most heartwarming stories that we've ever heard from. And this is the hope that I mean, Andrew. The hope of the playoffs are just around the corner. And so I want everybody else to open their hearts up, you know, let down their inhibitions, like Ahmed says, and get really ready, fired up for the basketball game that's about to matter that are coming right around the corner. Until then, Andrew, they can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. They can also check us out on Apple Podcasts, search for Open Floor. That's two words. Find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. Follow me on Instagram at ben.goliver for these incredible lantern segments. Listen to these answers that are just coming in week after week from our incredible open floor globe. Join in no, the fun you know what, man? on there. Let me tell you something. It's scary to say this out loud. It might be something I regret in the future. But today's lantern submissions, I'm I'm higher on the lantern today than I have ever been in the last three or four months. I'm actually beginning to Heck like yeah. this segment. We'll see where we go. And we're going to need some like life-affirming stuff at the end of the podcast, though. It can't all be Chechen owners, but um, a nice blend today. <laughs> I enjoyed it. So What can I say? They came, they came through in the clutch. They've been carrying us for months. I'm glad you finally opened your eyes and realized it, Andrew. We're also on the world-famous radio.com slash open floor. Until next week, playoff week, Andrew, I will talk to you. Here we go. No more April angst. Actually, probably a lot more April angst. But I will talk to you soon, man. Take it easy.